so much to Kimberly for that. If you're in first through third grade, you can head on out straight to the back of the auditorium, head to your uh, children's program. If you're visiting, your kids are just going back to the, uh, the second classroom there on the left, room 104, and you can pick them up there after the service. Would you take your Bibles and go with me to the Gospel of John, to chapter number one, first of all. We're going to be continuing this uh, episode in the Gospel of John in John 4 that Pastor Joe began for us last week with the woman at the well. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to a concept that John records in his prologue that will be helpful for understanding what's going on in John 4. So if you're in John chapter number 1, would you look with me at verse number 18? Verse number 18. We'll read this one verse of Scripture, and then we'll pray and ask for God's blessing on the message today. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Would you join me in prayer? Our gracious God, as we come before you today to look at your word. Father, would you create a people for your own possession Proclaim your excellencies, you who have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, once we who were not a people, Lord, we are now the people of God. And that work that you've begun, would you continue that? Would you sanctify our worship by your word? Would you make us progress in our love and adoration for you and your character, our understanding of your person, our obedience to your word, Father, would you create new worshipers? Out of this room, those who are listening, Father, would you call more people to be part of this kingdom of God? Would you give us understanding as we read and as we think, as we consider, give us faith and a will to obey? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 1.18, we have a verse of Scripture that couples the most devastating news possible with the greatest news imaginable. And in terms of just proximity, I don't think there's another verse in Scripture that could possibly do the same thing except for maybe Romans 6.23 where it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This is an incredibly devastating portion of Scripture. Do you see what is so incredibly horrible for you and for me in our, in our condition, verse number 18? Do you see that devastating news? No one has ever seen God. Now, on the surface, that may not seem like that big of a deal. I mean, God doesn't have a body. Is it that big of a deal that no one has ever seen God? Is it that devastating? Well, it certainly is because it means when it says no one has ever seen God, it means that whatever it means to be rightly related to God, whatever it means to know God, whatever it means to live everlastingly, whatever it means to be redeemed and cleansed of guilt, all of those states are completely inaccessible by you and by me because of our finiteness. God is is something altogether different than you and me. 
He dwells, as the Bible teaches us, in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. And if not only for the finiteness of our natures, you and I have no chance at accessing God in a saving way because of our sinfulness compounded on top of that. At the very best, Romans 1 teaches us that the most we can hope for is that by the light of nature we could discern that there is a God and that he is powerful and that we have broken his law. Anything more than that is closed off to you and to me. It is devastating news because it means that you and I have no possibility in ourselves of knowing God savingly unless... God somehow reveals himself of his own initiative. If God does not initiate a relationship with humanity, by revealing himself to us, you and I are lost eternally. Usually, though, we don't consider well this horrific prospect. And so in our lives, you and I as Christians, we take Jesus for granted We fail to understand how precious and absolutely comprehensively transformative the work of Jesus is in the heart. Jesus changes everything. In fact, what the ministry of the death and resurrection of Jesus does is to sweep away everything about us and remake us completely so that we are new creatures. You remember the passage of Scripture, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And so as we look at verse 18 of chapter 1 here in the Gospel of John, we see this devastating news that no one has ever seen God. We're hopeless unless God initiates something. And this is why I say that the most devastating news possible is laid side by side with the greatest news imaginable. In our hopeless state of having zero access to the creator God, look at what we are told. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. Friends, only God can reveal God, and that is exactly what has happened. As God the Father has sent God the Son to reveal the divine nature, to manifest the Godhead, to exegete God to us. The ministry of Jesus, seen in his actions, but primarily seen in his words, reveals God. God to you and to me. Our greatest need for all of eternity is to know God savingly. Only God could initiate it, and Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, does exactly that. And this is a relevant point for us to consider because the Old Testament predicted that this would happen. In the book of Deuteronomy, 
Near the end of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter number 18, we have some of Moses' final words to the people of Israel, his last hurrah, his final sermons, the last exhortations of a man who knows he's quickly passing off the scene. He's preaching to the people of Israel the covenant of God once again and exhorting them to keep the covenant of God for their blessing. He's also warning them of forsaking the covenant of God lest they be cursed, but also also predicting that they will, in fact, disobey the covenant of God to their own detriment, that the wrath of God will fall on them. But in chapter 18 of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says something incredibly hopeful. Chapter 18, verse 15, Moses gives this prophetic prediction. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. And here are the Lord's words, the Lord's promise concerning a revelation about himself. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It's interesting, Pastor Joe pointed out last week that the Samaritans, the woman at the well is a Samaritan woman, the Samaritans typically only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected anything more than the Pentateuch, that original giving of the law. And so when in John 4, you'll recall, when the Samaritan woman says that she knows Messiah is coming and that he will tell us all things, it is very, very likely that this is the passage she is thinking of in Deuteronomy 18. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll show us all things. What is she thinking of? A prophet like Moses who will have the words of God in his mouth. And it is to that person that God's people will listen. This theme gets picked up throughout the scriptures again. But in uh, Isaiah chapter number 61, Isaiah gives another prophecy about this prophet like Moses who is coming. In Isaiah 61, the prophet writes under inspiration, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is that prophet like Moses who has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, anointing him for the preaching of the Word of God. He said so himself in Luke 4, verse 20. He's in the synagogue. He's reading the portion of the scroll that was handed to him in Isaiah, by God's providence, chapter 61. He reads that section we just heard from Isaiah 61. And what is the Lord's comment on the passage, which is designed to be an exposition, something of an exhortation to the people based on God's word. How does Jesus exegete Isaiah 61? He says, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
And with those concepts in mind, would you turn with me now to John 4? This conversation with the woman at the well that begins the account really in verse number 7 and goes all the way through verse 26, there's really two major parts to it. Pastor Joe preached for us the first part of the conversation last week. And in that sermon, he outlined for us the gift of God which Jesus spoke about in the beginning of the conversation. And you're in chapter number four, look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you. The living water that Jesus then talks about is Jesus expounding on the gift of God. He tells her what he's going to be talking to her about, and then he does exactly that. He explains what he means by the gift of God in describing living water that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ that becomes a well of everlasting life bubbling up within a person themselves. The second part of the conversation is also given to us because he says, if you do the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you. And that's really the outline of the second part of this conversation. As we look at verses 15 and following, Jesus gives insight as to his own person, who Jesus is. And so as we consider this particular passage of scripture, we're going to learn what Jesus is teaching her about himself, namely that Jesus is the messianic prophet who is the final and sufficient revelation of the Father. Jesus is the messianic prophet who is the final and sufficient revelation of the Father. With that in mind, let's look at John 4. We're going to read again verse 7 through verse 26. And then today, we will focus really on verses 16 and following. Verse number 7, John 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband And come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now it's clear from our passage that this woman at the well believes that Jesus is a prophet and that Jesus then further refines that idea by telling her explicitly that he is the Messiah. But even beyond that, we see in this passage three different ways that Jesus exercises a prophetic ministry in our passage. Jesus shows us that he is the messianic prophet, the final revelation of the Father. The first way that Jesus does that is by revealing the sinfulness of the heart. This corresponds to that section where he's talking about her husbands and asking her to go call them. He's exposing the sinfulness of her heart. Just as the prophets of the Old Testament spent so much of their ministry exposing and condemning the sins of the nations, Jesus helps this woman see the sinfulness of her own heart. The second way that Jesus shows a prophetic ministry is by revealing the Father and right worship. Revealing the Father and right worship. If you were to study the prophets of the Old Testament again, you see striking parallels between their message and what Jesus says about true worship here in this passage. It wouldn't take very long for you to kind of cross-reference in your mind or do some Google searches or your Bible app to find all of the times when God condemns the sort of worship where lip service is being offered, but the heart is far from me. And so Jesus, in a similar prophetic vein, is revealing the Father and true right worship. And then there's a third way that Jesus exercises a prophetic ministry. But this he does in a way that the Old Testament prophets never could. We're going to see finally in a few minutes how Jesus makes his message effective in the heart. Jesus makes his message effective in the heart. And as we go along, I'll give those points again. But as we move through this passage of Scripture, we're going to take that very simple framework, those three major ideas, and work our way through the passage with those concepts. The first being that Jesus, as the Messianic prophet, exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. The Messianic prophet, Jesus, he exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. We see this beginning in verse number 16, going through verse 18. Look at that with me again. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, 
we have some information regarding this woman's lifestyle. At the very least, what is clear by implication is that this woman's reputation is not stellar. She is not well thought of in her community, even given that none of the divorces had anything to do with her, like she was completely innocent in every respect, it was highly frowned upon to be divorced more than once or twice in rabbinic literature. But that being the case, whatever it is, we recognize that no matter the circumstances of those many divorces, the current relationship she's in now is adulterous. The man she has now is not her husband. And so Jesus is exposing this kind of a sinfulness in her, and we don't want to speculate too much on the, the various types of sins that she's committed, but it doesn't take much to know that what she is doing and how she is living is out of step with God's revealed will. And this teaches us several things as we consider Jesus in this portion of Scripture. The first thing that I want us to understand just from this concept of Jesus exposing the sinfulness of the heart is that there's no salvation without a true knowledge of personal sin. And this is important because it takes more to be saved than recognizing that evil exists. It takes more to be saved than recognizing that some people are sinners. We must be reminded from this passage that there's no true salvation without a personal knowledge of my sin. Dear friends, your evangelism, my evangelism, is incomplete if we never talk about sins that have been committed by the person you're trying to witness to. You can talk about how wonderful Jesus is, you can talk about how he's your friend, how he makes you happy and joyful, and all of those things are things that ought to be said, and regularly. But Jesus can never help them if they need no Savior from the sins that they've committed. A redemptive relationship that never crosses the bridge of showing sinfulness is not a redemptive relationship. But that being the case, notice how gentle Jesus is with her. Notice how he probes her conscience. He exercised wisdom in the kinds of statements that he made. You'll notice that when she made the excuse about, I have no husband, that was clearly a let's shut this conversation down very quickly kind of a statement. True as far as it goes, but essentially she is saying back off. I don't want to talk about it. And Jesus affirms the truthfulness of what she said. What a tactic she's using to evade the searching light of God's knowledge in her heart. And yet Jesus, persistent but gentle, he affirms the truthfulness of her statement even as he gently holds up the mirror of God's word to her heart. Friends, we must, must help people understand that they themselves are sinners. And friends, if you are here, and perhaps you have assumed yourself to be a Christian for so many years but have never made the connection in your own heart, that you personally 
stand condemned under the wrath of God because of sins you have committed. Friends, if you have never come to recognize that, you have not yet found Jesus to be a Savior. Friends, the Bible teaches very clearly that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How often in your life have you tried to pass the blame as Adam did with Eve, onto others and say that you yourself are innocent, though all else may be guilty. But friends, for those who recognize the desperateness of their condition, there is a gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only do we need to recognize the personal nature of our sins, but this short section here helps us remind ourselves that God knows the truest state of our hearts. God knows all things, friends. This is Sunday school material, right? Easy, the omniscience of God. But it's helpful for us to remember that there's a lot of sin in our lives that our friends and family and fellow church members never notice. There's even more sin in our hearts that we never notice. But friends, we need to be reminded often that there's no sin we commit in our attitudes our motivations, our thoughts, even our most basic primal urges, longings, desires that are contrary to his word that God does not notice. Friends, Jonah could never run from God because there was no place on earth that God did not see him. Jonah forgot the omnipresence of God. But you and I, I think we often forget the omniscience of God. Friends, never forget that What you and I do in the deepest recesses of our own hearts, God knows all of it. Every sin that we commit in our hearts, he knows. Would you be honest with God about your inward state just as much as you are with him about your outward state? Would you please be just as quick to confess the sins you commit in your desires and in your thoughts as you are to confess those that you have done against other people? Friends, a third point that we learn from this is that conviction of sin is actually a blessing from God. Conviction of sin is a work of the Holy Spirit by which he holds our life against the standard of God's holiness. Whenever you feel that crushing feeling in your chest because you recognize that God has required more of you than what you've done or has required you not to do a lot of things that you've done, and you feel that crushing feeling, that is a painful experience. It is probably one of my absolute least favorite things that I ever experience as a human being on this earth. And yet, I have to remind myself frequently that the conviction of the Lord is a good thing. It is God showing mercy to me. It is God showing mercy to you. Remember how the book of Hebrews teaches us that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. He chastises every son that he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In fact, if you're left without discipline, the writer says, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons. And besides this, in verse 9 of chapter 12, the writer says, We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines you for your good, so that you may share in his holiness. For the moment, the writer acknowledges the universal truth, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Remember the goodness of God as he disciplines you. And don't run from it. Rather, think on the holiness you'll share in if you learn from it. Friends, that's convicting all the way around. For all the number of sins that I so easily let go in my life, Perhaps for you, that's a a heavy hit right out the gate in John 4. But remember the promise of the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is a never-ending promise that can be used for every sin you commit. It's not as though you get 25 1 John 1, 9s to use in a week. The promise of God is faithful to cleanse for every sin. Friends, Jesus shows that he is the messianic prophet in the way that he reveals the sinfulness of the human heart. But not only that, he reveals the father and right worship. Look down at verse number 19. We'll kind of just move a little bit more stepwise through this passage of scripture. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Here's an interesting transition that we have. I want you to notice, first of all, the progress that this woman has in her understanding of Jesus. She's growing in this conversation. She's not static. She's making progress. Remember how at the beginning of the conversation, back in verse number 10, 10 verses ago, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, And the woman could not possibly accept that Jesus was anywhere close to being able to uh, follow through on that particular promise. Most commentators believe that she's actually being a little bit sarcastic, probably scornful, definitely rude when she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? It's a little bit rhetorical, like, no, obviously you're not. You're just a normal dude. So what's going on with this? We see that her opinion of Jesus has changed. She says, I see that you are a prophet. Her perception is still not what it needs to be, but she does know that he's a person who has revelation from God. He's a prophet who's come to show people the way to rightly relate to God. And so at verse 20, there's this shift, and you kind of have two possible options of what's going on here in the conversation. The conversation was centered around the woman's personal life, her marital status. The first option of what's going on here is that the woman is trying to change the subject again because of how embarrassed she is at having her personal sins exposed by Jesus. So she might be thinking, okay, that's enough about me. That hurts a little bit too much. Let's talk about something else. And she's changing the conversation. That's one option. It's possible. I don't think it's the most likely. The second option, the one that I think makes the most sense, um, as well as the one that the majority of conservative scholars and commentators hold to, going back really hundreds of years, is that this woman now has had her conscience awakened to her true state with God. At this point in the conversation, she recognizes her sinfulness. 
She knows and she's actually feeling the effect of her sin in her heart as the Holy Spirit deals with her. And so what does she do? With a conscience that has been awakened and a prophet sitting in front of her, she wants to know the answer to the most important question. How ought I worship God? Given who God is and given who I am, what ought to be the state of worship? How do I rightly relate to God? What is it that he requires of me positively? How can I be in a right relationship with this God? Now, I think her, the way she goes about that is still superficial. It's still carnal. She's focused on location. She's asking, is it this mountain or is it that mountain? But one of the reasons I think this interpretation makes sense rather than just trying to evade and change the subject is that Jesus never changes the subject back to her sins. He, he wants to get here and park on worship. This is really the meat of the conversation. This and living water. How can, we, how can we have eternal life? How can we worship our God? He gives extended instruction regarding the nature of God, the location, the modes, regarding how he's to be worshipped. Even if Jesus were to go back and talk about her sins some more, he would still come back to worship. If Jesus never brought up worship, Jesus would get there. If the woman never brought up worship, Jesus would have gotten there in the conversation. So what is being taught to us in this section of Scripture? Jesus begins teaching in verse number 21. We start learning some things about worship. Verse 21, let's look at this again. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. The first truth about right worship that Jesus shows us in verse 21 is that Jesus reveals the location of worship. He reveals the location of worship. And the point that he makes regarding the location of worship is that there are no sacred spaces. There are no sacred spaces. Jesus teaches us very specifically that there will no longer be one specific location for worship like in Jerusalem. Well, then you ask the question, well, then does that mean that worship happens nowhere? No, it doesn't mean that. If the temple is no longer in Jerusalem, the place where God ought to be worshipped, then where is God meant to be worshipped? There are two answers to this, but in order to get those answers, we look to the rest of the New Testament. The first answer to this question of where in worship, the location of worship, is the Christian individual. The Christian individual. In the book of 1 Corinthians, you remember the text well. Chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He is the one you have from God... You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The location of worship, rather than a geographic location, is a location of the person. It is in the individual, the Christian, the one who has faith in Jesus, has become the temple of the Spirit of God. The second answer to this question of the location of worship is the church, the corporate 
body. Because even as we all are individual temples, the Bible teaches us also in Ephesians 2, in the book of 1 Peter, that we are all being built up together into a temple for the Lord. We are being fitted together, and specifically the point gets made over and over again that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of that temple. And so what is the implication of all of this? When you come into this building, it cannot possibly in any sense be a sanctuary because these square feet are not holy places, but rather if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, it is in your life that worship must occur. But you might say, well, doesn't this just mean that I can just stay home and I just have my own private worship session with God and that's good enough because I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the biblical answer is, yes, you're a temple that is meant to join up with other temples on the Lord's Day to worship together. So you and I gather every Sunday, hopefully by habit, but at least now by understanding Because we are being built up by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to offer worship together. As we grow in obedience as a church, we are exhibiting worship to God as a corporate body. When you and I sing with joy on Sunday mornings, we are one temple in the Lord offering worship and praise to God. When you and I hear the Bible read to us out loud and we determine in our hearts to believe it, Together, guess what we're doing? We're worshiping in the true temple of God. And as we worship in the true temple of God, God manifests his divine presence with us. Friends, this is an amazing truth that as our understanding, both individually and corporately, grows in our love of the scriptures, our love of the truth, and our obedience to it, so grows our worship of the eternal God. Jesus reveals there is no sacred space. He reveals the true location of worship. It is in the soul. It is in the corporate body of believers. We learn a few more things about worship here. Verse number 22. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. With those, all those yous, he is um, differentiating between the Jews and the Samaritans. And in this verse of scripture, Jesus is revealing the basis for worship. Verse 22, the basis for worship. 21, the location of worship. 22, the basis for worship. It's interesting that even as Jesus is saying, listen, the hour is coming when location will no longer matter, Verse 22 settles the argument. By the way, woman at the well, the Jews were right. It is at Jerusalem that you ought to be worshiping. And the reason for this is because the word of God commanded it. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, it is on Zion that I have put my holy name. It is in this place that he commanded David to build a temple that would replace the tabernacle and the temporary locations at Shiloh and so forth. And then we read of Solomon constructing this temple, and Solomon dedicates this temple, and God manifests his presence in Jerusalem at the temple. Is the point of all of this to say, ha ha, we're right, you're wrong, get it right? No, no, no. What Jesus is saying is that the basis for worship is always determined by Scripture. You ignore Scripture and you get worship wrong. Friends, 
we must guard against the idea that because the old covenant with the law of Moses, that because that has been replaced with the new covenant of grace, that now worship is just a subjective experience. Worship's a big free-for-all. As long as I'm feeling the worship vibes, then, man, God is pumped about that. That is not at all what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that worship must be regulated, governed, and directed by the Bible. Whatever the Bible says we do in worship, that's what we do. And the New Testament is not silent on this. The New Testament commands us to sing all together. Friends, I love hearing our church family sing. And I love being able to participate in that with you all because when we do that, we are in obedience to God's commands. And just gently, if you refuse to sing then it's in disobedience to God's commands. Friends, very similarly, when the Bible commands that we pray in worship, we pray. Because to pray in worship is obedience to God's commands. To fail to pray in worship is disobedience to God's commands. We are told that when we gather, we ought to preach the scriptures. And so if we preach the Bible, it's in obedience to God's commands. And if we fail to preach the Bible, we're worshiping in disobedience to God's commands. So for all of the problems that the Jewish people had in their worship, they were closer to being correct in their worship than the Samaritans were because they at least were ordering their worship on the scriptures. Friends, there's one more truth about worship we're going to see in verses 23 and 24. We've seen the location of worship. We've seen the basis for worship. And now Jesus is going to reveal the Father who is to be worshipped. The Father who is to be worshipped. I want to point out, and there's so much that could be said just about these two verses, but I want to point out two characteristics of God that come up in verses 23 and 24. The first thing is in verse 23. Would you look with me at verse 23? But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The first truth we see about God, as Jesus reveals him for worship, is that God is seeking true worshipers. Friends, God the Father is actively seeking true worshipers. And the way that we should not think about this is that God is desperately looking all over the world for somebody to get it right. Rather, what he's doing is he is seeking to make these worshipers himself. God is seeking for the purpose of creating. He will create the true worshipers in his seeking. This is why Jesus said that he came to seek and save that which, that which was lost. Jesus never has approved of people who are already righteous in their own eyes. Jesus instead approves of those who are like the tax collector praying in the temple who doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven but beats his breast crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Friends, if God seeks and finds that you are a true worshiper, it is not a reason for self-congratulation. 
because God himself sought you, as the Bible said, while you were still a sinner. God's seeking of true worshipers always follows through by creating true worshipers out of the sinners that he finds. A second characteristic of God, not only is he seeking worshipers, but we learn in verse 24 that God is a spirit. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God has no body. The word that we use for that is incorporeal. Corporeal meaning body, in meaning none of it. That means he is without a body. He is not limited to occupying any particular space. Our worship should not be directed to God as if he's a physical being, which is one of the reasons why God prohibits it in the Ten Commandments. Don't make any likeness of me in heaven or on earth. Don't make me look like anything that's crawling on the earth. Why? Because I'm not like any of those things. Our worship cannot be, uh, it must be more than mere ritual. This is one of the major differences and problems in the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, the very fact that you are occupying pew space during the Mass means that grace is coming down to you from heaven. The mere fact that you are saying words in a particular direction towards images and offering veneration and honor to these images, which is prohibited by Scripture, means that good things are coming to you from God. And yet God says, do not worship me as though I'm a mere physical being who can be worshipped by merely physical actions. Your presence at church has never once gotten you an inch closer to heaven. Your mere being in this place has never once drawn you close to God such that he draws close to you. It is always a matter of the spirit that draws near to God. It's ordered and regulated by God's commands. We obey what he tells us to do. But if all we offer is the mere physical action, then you have not yet worshipped God because God is spiritual, not physical. Then the final thing that we want to see also from verses 23 and 24 is Jesus revealing the nature of worship. The nature of worship. Verses 23 and 24 combine points. I pointed out just now, Jesus reveals the Father who's seeking worshipers, and he is a spirit. Now Jesus is revealing the nature of this true worship. We've already learned some things about this. It's not tied to a location. It's ruled by God's word. But here we have an introducing of the idea of worship is characterized by spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Look again, verses 23 and 24. The hour is coming now here. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father seeking such people to worship him. 24, God's a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, there are as many ideas about what spirit and truth means as there are commentaries that have touched on it. I myself have had four to five different views this week on this passage. Some commentators suggest that the Spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit, who comes upon believers and enables a right worship of God. Uh, has a lot to commend it. 
Quite a lot of commentators suggest that spirit refers consistently to the inward spirit of man that's willingly engaged in worship as well. Uh, some people suggest that spirit stands in contrast to the location of the temple, so Jesus is saying no physical location, rather the spirit. Some commentators say that this idea of truth refers to Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, the one by which we come to the Father. Other people would see truth as referring more specifically to the written revelation of the scriptures. And the tough thing is that if you were to take any one of those statements, all of those statements are true in and of themselves, and it's not particularly clear in the passage which one of those things Jesus meant when he said it. We certainly have to worship in the power of the Spirit. There is no such thing as worship that doesn't come from the enabling of the Spirit. We've just learned that there's no such thing as worship that's offered that's mere formalism. There's no worship that's offered merely outwardly, but it must be inwardly. And we've learned that worship must be directed by the truth of God's Word, that Jesus is the one who reveals that truth. It's entirely possible that what Jesus is suggesting here, rather than one specific interpretation, is that he's giving the emphasis of what worship will be in the new covenant. That he's referring, it's almost like a shorthand kind of a phrase. Spirit and truth just refers in shorthand to all of the worship that goes on and the way that it goes on in this covenant of grace into which we've been brought. And so for that reason, I think that when Jesus says spirit and truth, he's probably referring to all of New Covenant worship. Because of our union with Christ, you and I look at the written word of God and we respond rightly and we access the Father by way of the Son. And as we do this, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit with all of the blessings of that union with Christ such that we worship joyfully, willingly, eagerly in our inward spirit. And God's people do this all over the world. Hebrews 13 says that we offer acceptable sacrifice to God, which is the fruit of our lips. Now, you may have a strong opinion on what spirit and truth refers to among those other options, and you may not land where I've landed, and that's perfectly okay. But what is left for us, for sure, is that new covenant worship must be initiated by God and lead back to God. We must have God do something in our hearts, and what he does in our hearts must then be directed back in the whole life to God. This is what we see in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Why? Because that's reasonable worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Your whole life ought to be worship. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God make you into a chosen race, a royal people for his own possession, so that you would worship him, so that you would proclaim his excellencies? All of life is for worship, and it is for worship that you have been created. So let everything that you undertake in your life be offered as worship to God and do everything in your life in a way that honors and highlights the character of God in that action. The final point that we want to make from this story, this account, 
We've seen how Jesus exposes the sinfulness of the heart as the messianic prophet. We've seen how Jesus, as the messianic prophet, reveals the Father and true worship. And the final point that we want to see in verses 25 and 26 is that Jesus, the messianic prophet, makes his message effective in the heart. He makes his message effective in the heart. Let's read verses 25 and 26 again. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, whenever that might be, he will tell us all things. You hear the confusion in her voice still. She's accepted what he said, but she has not yet crossed that bridge from unbelief to belief. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In the original language, this is emphatic. This is absolutely an incredible couple of verses. My favorite part of this whole passage is verses 25 and 26. Jesus has been having this conversation with this woman. There's progress that's been made. But then she comes back and says, well, all that you've said is well and good, but you're not the end of the dispute about worship. Jesus, for whatever insight and wisdom you may have as a prophet, you don't have the final word. Messiah does. Whenever he comes, he will be the one to guide my heart to the Father in worship. It is a rejection of Jesus in place of somebody else. The literary irony is supposed to be killing us right now. She believes that all of the prophet's writings are incomplete and it needs one more revelation. It needs another prophet. We've been waiting for Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now at the end of the conversation in verse 25, it looks like we're still going to be waiting from her perspective. And I don't think there's any intent of offensiveness in the woman's tone here. I really don't think that she means any, uh, any kind of jab at Jesus like, well, you're not the Messiah. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think she's just honestly, truly saying that, you know what? It's been helpful, good conversation, but I don't believe. So what does Jesus do? What techniques of apologetics does he employ at this point? What arguments does he use to convince her? No, no, I, I really am. How does he get her to pray and make a confession of faith? Look at verse 26. All he says is, I who am speaking to you am he. I mentioned before that in the original language, this phrase is emphatic. Basically, in the Greek language, the kinds of tenses that you use can kind of put like a verbal highlighting, bold typeface, underline, italics in certain things that you say. It can make some things more important, other things less important. We typically do this in English with our tone. We use our tone to draw attention to certain things as important. Greek does it in the way they construct the language itself, the way they use their verbs. And what's going on here is Jesus is saying, I, 
I am the one. He's literally saying, ego a me. That's a, the, the phrase emphatic, I am. I'm the Messiah. And he's not really referring so much back to the burning bush thing with Moses. He's drawing attention to the Messiah language that she just used. I am the Messiah. She says explicitly, without any shadow of a doubt, zero lack of confidence in Jesus' statement right here. And in that one phrase, we see instantly how Jesus is a million times greater than every other prophet who came before him. For all of the hundreds of pages of text in your print Bibles, in your laps, right now in the books of the prophets, the prophets were such failures judged by the responses of the people, they could not get anybody to listen to them. Jonah had more luck with pagan Assyrians than most of the prophets did with Israelites. The prophets are gloriously repetitive and redundant. The same thing over and over again. Your idolatry, your false worship, your injustice, your immorality is bringing judgment from God, so repent. And we are left with minimal repentance that at best lasts for a generation or two. And even when the Israelites come back from their exile, they're restored in the land, and Their religious observance that they pick up in the temple is quickly eaten up by pharisaical legalism. Traditions of men outside of scripture. In this text, though, Jesus does not continue to pile on sermon after sermon. Rather, he merely tells her that he is the Messiah. How does that convince her to believe? If you just kind of scan down with your eyes, you'll notice that she leaves her pot there and rushes down into town to tell everybody about him. What a radical transformation of the heart. What could prompt such a response from her? That she would go back into the town that ostracized her, where her reputation was awful. Friends, Jesus brought her to himself by the power of his word. His word is effective. We just heard in our scripture reading this morning. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word about Christ. John 6, 37. Jesus himself preaches all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Friends, it is God who makes his word effective in the heart. This is what makes Jesus different and greater than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Greater than Muhammad even. Greater than Buddha. Greater than Joseph Smith or any other self-proclaimed revealer of divine truth. Jesus' word is an effective word that turns the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And in this way, his word is a living word. Quick and powerful, it is alive It goes far beyond the abilities of any other prophet. 
Our Messiah is the true and final prophet who perfectly reveals the Father to us and powerfully brings us to the Father. And so in conclusion, we see this prophetic ministry of Jesus exercised so powerfully and so beautifully for sinners who were hopeless in themselves. How should we respond to this? Friends, we have a great responsibility to listen to the prophet from God. He has a word for us that reveals the Father. And it reveals true and right worship. In Matthew 17, on the mountain of transfiguration, do you remember that the voice of God the Father spoke down from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Friends, Jesus reveals the Father. Do you neglect his word? Jesus Christ has given us the greatest treasure in his prophetic word contained in the Bible. It is our greatest joy to sit at his feet each day and learn from him. And yet there are some who not only neglect, but ignore the revelation that Jesus offers of the Father. For what? Netflix. The gym, free time, friends, the final prophet who tells us all things has come. Listen to him. We must also give our lives to true worship, corporate worship, private worship. The book of Hebrews says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Never believe the lie that your private worship is an acceptable substitute for corporate worship. You worship in your whole life, and one of the ways you worship in your whole life every day is by gathering with God's people whenever you can. Finally, we must follow the example of our great prophet. As Jesus is a prophet, he has given a prophetic ministry to us. Not to foretell the future, but as Paul says, we're to speak the truth in love to one another so that we grow up in every way into the him, the head, who is Christ. In the same way that our Savior sought the lost, he's commissioned us with his gospel for the same purpose. We're never allowed to think as believers that we can merely come to a building once a week without investing our lives in the lives of others through the words of exhortation from the Bible. Your ministry in the church is a serving ministry And it is a word ministry for every one of you. Let's follow our prophetic king, our Messiah. Friends, no one has seen God at any time. But praise be to God that the only God who's at the Father's side, he's made him known to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We praise you. What a glorious revelation we have of our heavenly Father. Lord, you know all things. You know our hearts. There's no excuse that we can make that can evade your purposes and your plans. And so, Lord, we don't want to make any excuses. We want to offer afresh all of our lives in worship to you. Not merely outward action, not merely lip service, but the inward spirit, the heart. Would you give us grace as we do this?